everyone, welcome to After Dark Analysis. Today we are going to be talking about STDs and STIs in horror. For the most part, I will be using the term STI instead of STD in this episode, because in these abbreviations, D stands for disease, while the I stands for infection. Medically, infections are only called diseases when they cause symptoms. Since most of these films deal with the early stages of infection, STI is the more accurate term. We have talked countless times about how Horror tends to have very puritanical standards when it comes to sex. But to fully understand this particular trope, we're going to need to go back a little bit. During World War I, about 18,000 men were taken out of battle due to venereal disease. And it could take a month of treatment before they were ready to get back on the front lines. Manpower, we just didn't have to spare. According to the Military Medicine Journal, the army lost nearly 7 million person days and discharged more than 10,000 men because of STIs. The only thing that accounted for more loss of people during duty was the great influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1919. By the time World War II came around, penicillin and sulfa had dropped those numbers dramatically. But to avoid history repeating itself, the U.S. Surgeon General, the U.S. Public Health Service, and the Federal Security Agency commissioned a set of posters these were linked up with films that were shown to soldiers that the battalions lovingly deemed Susie Crotch Rot films. They all had about the same premise. Soldier meets a local woman. They have sex. Soldier contracts a venereal disease. One of the more popular titles from this subgenre was called USSVD, Ship of Shame. They also commissioned several posters that are now referred to as penis propaganda. These would say things like, you can't beat the Axis if you get VD, or warned against good time girls. Some even used the guilt of parents and the girl you probably left back home to go off to fight to attempt to keep soldiers from going out picking up women and possibly contracting a venereal disease. Some use such fake statistics as 98% of procurable women have venereal disease. I can find no statistical backing to that whatsoever. Some of these posters were a little bit more specific and advised soldiers to use a rubber, wash with soap and water, and take prolaxis. Along with a slogan, these are the weapons against syphilis and the clap. Use them. This tone carried on to public health information for civilians as well. With these attitudes in mind, it's absolutely no surprise this trickled over into horror. Classic monsters like vampires and werewolves typically became infected via biting, which was a transference of bodily fluids, lining up almost perfectly with government propaganda of the day. But these ideas were less on the surface. They were often obscured by large morality tales due to censorship standards and public attitudes at the time. The first film we're going to talk about is pretty much the first horror film that openly addressed what it was about, which is Shivers from 1975. This movie revolves around a high-rise apartment complex that's on an island. It's described as very trendy and modern, and it's clearly designed for people that are much more affluent. A young woman named Annabelle is murdered. Not only is she choked to death, her body is laid out on the kitchen table, her abdomen sliced open, and then acid poured into the cavity. Once her body is discovered, the doctors at the apartment complex begin to investigate what's going on. It turns out that Annabelle seems to be patient zero for an STI that is running rampant through the apartment complex. We confirm that Annabelle is 19, which is noteworthy because the men we confirm had sex with Annabelle through the STI 
were at least old enough to be her father. A few were old enough to be her grandfather. Just to clarify, since this film was shot in Canada, in 2008, the age of consent was raised from 14 to 16. This is the first time the age of consent had been raised since 1892. It's also confirmed later on that the acid poured into her abdomen was an attempt to burn the parasite to keep it from moving on to other people. Instead of this being a traditional infection, it's a parasite that transfers from person to person through unprotected sex and essentially makes them sex-crazed zombies, which is going to be a recurring theme all through this subgenre. Since this apartment complex is a very small and removed population, there's a couple of different things playing in here. It's a pretty common trope among entertainment that people from small areas end up kind of sleeping around because there isn't much else to do. And dealing with such a small population, it becomes figuratively incestuous of multiple people sharing the same partner. Though this film does literally deal with incest later on. Unprotected sex against a small group can be used as an allegory for the youth at the time who were often scapegoated as being the ones that weren't protecting themselves and spreading around STIs. But the older generation was equally as problematic because many of these men were originally cheating on their wives with Annabelle. So when physical symptoms started to arise, like bumps on their genitalia, they didn't go to the doctor because they didn't want to admit to having an affair. A really transparent commentary on the fact STIs were spread through silence and lack of communication and people not wanting to say they were infected because of the stigmas attached. This is really common in Cronenberg's work. Most of his body horror films in the 80s were used as allegories for the AIDS crisis. Since this film is from 75, it's safe to assume Cronenberg was probably more talking about gonorrhea and syphilis. And as more people, specifically the older generation, come into the fold, we see the sexual behavior getting more and more stereotypically deviant. This is another recurring theme in Cronenberg's work. He deals a lot in alternative subcultures. His film Crash is completely about a sexual subgroup that gets aroused by car accidents. So as the older generation starts to get infected, their urges that they've been repressing for so long skews and amplifies into behavior they wouldn't have normally thought to do. That's not to say the younger generation bears no responsibility. Annabelle was clearly meant to be a representation of complete sexual freedom. Her actions led to a lot of people being hurt not only physically but emotionally. When it came to light that she was having sex with multiple older men, some of them were hurt that she was not with them exclusively, even though they were cheating on their wives. The younger generation is treated much more as a statistical problem. Since they're having more partners, the chance of being exposed to somebody lying about their status is much higher and plays into the old stereotype that if you have an STI, you clearly must be sleeping around. Plenty of people who don't sleep around get STIs. The film Kids provides a straightforward example of this. When the character of Jeannie, who has recently lost her virginity, gets diagnosed with AIDS, while her friend Ruby, who's portrayed as much more promiscuous, has her test results come back negative. The shared burden between the new and the old for this problem is symbolically shown at the end of this film. Most of the residents end up in a swimming pool. Water is viewed as this very pure cleansing thing. That idea gets corrupted when everybody's jumping in in their normal clothes, so everyone can see what everybody else has on underneath, and it becomes hedonistic this is when we get a very slow, forced kiss between a young woman and an older man. 
And we see a pained expression on his face as this happens. And that pained expression is the merging between the new and the old. As cliche as it is, STIs don't discriminate. Your age will neither save nor condemn you. The choices you make are a much better barometer, but nothing is failsafe. The film ends on everybody leaving the parking deck, typically coupled up, and going out into the world. The implications of that are pretty clear. They're gonna go, they're gonna keep spreading this. Many of them viewed having the parasite as a very euphoric feeling that they wanted more people to experience, which again plays into a bold stereotype of people who are infected, being angry about it, and going around knowingly infecting others as some form of revenge. Those cases are so far from the norm, they're often labeled as urban legends. And Shivers is really hailed as like the highlight of this genre. And we don't get another entry until 1988 with Flesh-Eating Mothers. Flesh-Eating Mothers plays on a lot of the same stereotypes, but does it in a completely different way. We open up on a pan over children's drawings with this really happy, bouncy song with lyrics saying things like, don't ever get caught in suburbia. And then almost immediately cuts to a bedroom where we see a man and a woman talking. It turns out they're cheating on their respective spouses with each other. The man is named Roddy and he's a freelancer, so he does work from home. This is a slight variant because we normally get the bored housewife cheating trope and the woman he's having the affair with is the stereotypical bored housewife who had an affair for something to do. We're dealing with a small population again, just like Shivers, except for it's not a high-rise apartment complex, it's a well-to-do cul-de-sac where everyone knows everybody else. An idea that's underscored later on when we cut to a card game with most of the women from the neighborhood sans Sylvia, Roddy's wife, where most of the women confirm that they've also slept with him, making his current mistress very upset. And a noteworthy thing about this film, if you look at the cast list, you'll notice a lot of the female characters only go by Mrs. and their last name. While this film is about STIs, there is also heavy-handed social commentary about women's rights at the time and in that environment. And this name and convention plays into the depersonalization that we see reoccur all throughout this film. As the school day lets out and the kids come home, we see a few of the mothers start to complain about being hungry and eating just anything in sight. One of these women is Sylvia. She complains about her hunger while Roddy goes on and on and on about the benefits of an open marriage. Before either thing can be resolved, their baby starts to cry. Around this time, we also meet the recently separated Clyde and Lois. They do have a son together named Billy who lives with Lois. Clyde is a police officer and apparently that is a source of some strain in the relationship. But when he comes to get Billy for visitation, he finds Lois eating his arm. Shocked and repulsed by what he sees, he shoots her, which almost immediately results in him having to run because absolutely no one believes Clyde shot his ex-wife because she killed their son. After this, we catch to Roddy being in the doctor's where he's getting an STD screening. Him and doctor are back and forth talking about their various affairs, but Roddy allegedly comes up clean for STIs. It isn't until after he leaves, a nurse comes in and says that there's something strange on his panel. And the concern is completely dismissed with we only treat syphilis and gonorrhea. As Roddy goes home, he sees his neighbor John actively abusing his wife. Her nose is completely broken and his reaction to this is to pick her up, be sympathetic, but then immediately hit on her and he takes her inside to do the obvious. I just said these films are about STIs. I did not say anything about coherent storytelling. During this, the local coroner gets both Lois and Billy's bodies. 
As he's running Tess, he notices the same weird thing the nurse did. Just in time to cut to another baby being eaten. Sometime later, we cut back to John and his wife. He starts laying into her. She develops super strength and kills him. Their son, Jeff, sees this. He's understandably not that upset by it. With two dead kids and a dead husband, people are starting to pick up that there's something going on here. The teens in the area kind of end up grouping together and realize it's only the mothers acting violent and strange. While they're figuring that out, Coroner goes to talk to the local doctor about the weird blood work. The doctor dismisses him, but the nurse overhears. They team up and start comparing notes. Eventually, almost every single mother in the neighborhood starts to go on a weird cannibalistic killing spree. They're not just eating children, but they're eating people, animals, anything they can get their hands on. And that's when people are able to put together that it's an STI, but it only affects women who have given birth. Men are carriers, but they're asymptomatic. With several people working together, they are able to develop a cure that can be delivered via injection, just like you would penicillin. Once they're getting close enough to the mothers to inject them without being hurt, they come back rather quickly. After all the mothers get the shot and go back to normal, the nurse Felicia and Lee the coroner both walk off together having a very after-school special style conversation about how incredibly treatable most STIs are and how it's perplexing that there's still thousands of cases a year. After that neat little wrap-up, we do cut to Sylvia and Roddy. He's still going on and on about how outdated morality is keeping them from an open marriage. Sylvia bites him in the face as the radio talks about how they're seeing more cases of cannibalism. Another warning about how, even though it starts in a small community, doesn't necessarily stay there and anyone can be at risk. We are led to believe through most of this film that Roddy is patient zero, but a flashback shows that the commissioner's wife was the first affected. The commissioner was cheating on his wife, but cited religious reasons for not divorcing her, not to mention the political scandal a divorce could have caused. Roddy fits the bill for the stereotype of the philandering husband who got everybody sick simply because he didn't know he was infected, because he didn't have any outward symptoms, and even when he did get tested, there wasn't a panel developed for that quite yet. And while the mothers in this film didn't go sex-crazed like they did in Shivers, we saw people getting into very atypical behavior that was dangerous and hurting other people. The infections in this film were a pretty clear result of the misnomer if somebody looks clean, they couldn't possibly have an STI. If somebody is wealthy, they couldn't have an STI, which is just simply not true. While this is a sped up timeline, if these women had no reason to assume they had an STI, they probably weren't getting tested, therefore not getting treated, therefore the infection was getting worse and worse. Keep in mind, untreated STIs can eventually damage the brain, causing erratic behavior, which we'll see in pretty much every movie in this subgenre. Both sex and hunger are hind brain base instincts. So it's pretty safe to say in both shivers and flesh-eating mothers, we're dealing with the idea of a rampant and untreated STI starting to affect the mental health of those that are infected. These are over-the-top examples of a worst-case scenario. The next film cycles back to a lot of the ideas we are talking about at the beginning of this episode. The 2000 film Ginger Snaps is mostly about adolescents coming of age and how much puberty sucks. Ginger becomes a werewolf by much more traditional means. A werewolf comes out of the woods and bites her because it smelled the blood from her menstruating. She ends up having unprotected sex with Jason in the back of a car. 
The next day, when he goes to brag about having sex with Ginger, his friends point to a red stain on his pants near his crotch area. When he goes to the bathroom to take care of it, he starts peeing blood. Bridget flat out says the unprotected sex is what infected Jason. And Ginger, at another point in the film, says she had this craving, she thought it was for sex, but it was actually to tear everything apart. Playing into that whole sex and hunting for food are base instincts that are closely connected. Since the bulk of the film deals with everybody thinking Ginger's going through puberty when she's really turning into a werewolf, we don't get a great sense of who she is before she's infected, but given her attitudes towards her classmates and her having this dire need to be different, safe to say this was probably her first sexual encounter and both being teenagers and with unknown degrees of sexual education, a condom wasn't used, resulted in this. This brings us to 2013 with the film Contracted. I'm going to do away with chronological order for just a brief moment and cover Contracted, as well as its sequel, Contracted Phase 2, from 2015 together, since the films are so interconnected. Unlike the other films we've talked about, Contracted opens with Patient Zero. It happens in a morgue, via sex, with a corpse. Yes, I do know these films got overlooked in the Necrophilia episode. If more movies come up, I'll do a supplemental. After the morgue, we meet our protagonist, Sam. She's dealing with getting dumped by her girlfriend, Nikki, so she decides to party and drink with her friend Alice. At the party, she is approached by BJ, who offers her a drink. BJ is the guy we saw in the morgue. Even though Sam tells BJ she's a lesbian, she begins to black out and BJ takes her outside. We cut to a car rocking and even though she's clearly disoriented, we hear her say stop repeatedly. The next morning, Sam wakes up and believes she's just dealing with a nasty hangover. Come to find out the cops are looking for BJ. Alice has no clue who he was or why he was even there. No one at the party has any idea who he is and just assumed somebody else brought him. A while later when she goes to work, she has trouble eating, she's sensitive to noise. This sounds like your typical really bad lasting a few days hangover. Until she goes to the bathroom, where she begins to bleed heavily. Alcohol is a blood thinner, but it should have passed through her system by now. Even if it hadn't, her bleeding excessively, specifically when she's not on her period, is not normal. Terrified by the visual of a toilet covered in blood, she goes to the doctor. He finds that she has a super low heart rate and an ear infection, which fits with a cold. What doesn't gel with the cold is the bleeding and the newly discovered rash on her groin. We get the impression that Sam is fairly new to coming to terms with her sexual orientation. So when the doctor presses her, she swears up and down she's a lesbian and hasn't had sex with a man in over a year. After some pushing, she does admit to what happened with BJ. She minimizes it because she's clearly upset by it. While this scene is very preoccupied with heterosexual sex, Sam becoming infected does play into some misnomers about STIs. For a long time, and some still believe this, certain STIs were considered to be gay meaning they were only passed within the homosexual community. This was normally done to justify the bias of saying it was immoral, to the point where some made the argument that God created STIs to wipe out the homosexual population. So Sam being a lesbian does play into that stereotype, but since she was infected through heterosexual sex, it's dismissing that thought pattern for how ridiculous it is. Sam's condition deteriorates as the film progresses. Her eyes turn bloodshot, one eventually turns milky white. She has open sores all over her. Her hair keeps falling out in clumps, as well as her fingernails keep falling off, which is exactly what you want when you're working in a restaurant. 
she's decaying to a point where she really can't hide it anymore. Up to this point, Sam's mother, who she's been living with, has written off all of her symptoms as her falling back into heavy drug use, which she apparently has a history of. Her mother also does not agree with, nor support her, being a lesbian. It's clear Sam did not want to move back in, and it's causing a lot of strain between the two, which would explain her thinking she's falling back into drugs, and we tend to equate drug use with malnourishment, which absolutely causes your hair to fall out and things like that. Like Ginger Snaps, the mother drew a logical conclusion, thinking all the stress caused her to relapse, which is a much more understandable thing than my daughter has an STI that's causing her to rot from the inside. Just like Ginger Snaps, how it was easier to believe she was going through puberty instead of turning into a werewolf. It's classic Alchem's Razor. The simplest solution is probably the correct one. The hunt is still on for BJ, and eventually Zane, a local drug dealer, confesses to Alice that he did sell BJ Rohypnol at the party that night, which causes Alice to freak out more and try and help Sam. But between her illness, the stress, and the doctors not knowing what's going on with her because she did go to follow-up visits and they just can't help her or figure out what's going on, she starts to become hyper-violent and goes on a rampage in which she ends up killing several people. During this rampage, she tries to hook up with Riley, a guy who has a crush on her. Again, that sex and death equivalent. He stops them hooking up when he looks down and realizes that there are maggots falling out of her lady garden. Very reminiscent of the fingerbang misfire from Cabin Fever. Embarrassed and terrified, Sam runs off and ends up crashing her car, which leads to a standoff with police where her mother's literally standing between the two, begging the cops not to shoot. This is where Contracted Phase 2 from 2015 picks up. This one now follows Riley, dispelling the myth that you have to finish the act to become infected. He, he kind of stopped when he saw the maggots. He goes to get tested by his brother-in-law, who's also a doctor, who swears he will not tell his pregnant sister. Doctor even says it's a lot harder for guys to get these things, which according to the CDC is correct. The lining on female genitalia is thinner and it's more delicate than the skin on male genitalia, so it's easier for bacteria and viruses to penetrate. It's also a moist environment, which is a great breeding ground for bacteria. After the doctors, Riley goes home and we learn two things. That he lives with his grandmother and that he lied about his relationship with Sam. He didn't admit to having sex with her and pretended like he barely knew her when in the first film he was more or less stalking her. He did this to avoid a quarantine that most of the other people are now in. Riley and his grandmother share a drink, and then he goes to brush his teeth, his toothbrush touching hers. Again, this is playing on misinformation. For a while, it was believed that oral, not genital, HPV could be passed via shared drinks. It can't, but things like mononucleosis absolutely can be. And again, we're dealing with the idea that somebody can have something but not be showing outward symptoms of it. If we look at something like the flu, it takes us one to four days to start showing symptoms. Now think about all of the things you touch, people you talk to, sneezes, etc. in that time period. While touching a doorknob is far removed from sex, the idea is the same. Most people don't realize they are sick until they start to feel some kind of symptom which is shown very soon after because Riley goes off to have sex with a prostitute and when he gets home he realizes that where Sam had scratched his back is now raised and weeping. The scratch marks are not only a second possible point of infection, he's becoming symptomatic. At the same time, his grandmother starts presenting with a cold sore, even though she became infected much later. 
The reason we're going to assume for this is that she's older and has a weakened immune system because she does have a nurse that stops by the house pretty regularly. STIs have also been on the rise with the elderly due to the belief that since they can no longer get pregnant, they don't need to use protection, compounded on just poor sex education to begin with. Riley's symptoms are almost identical to Sam's, except he keeps getting nosebleeds. These nosebleeds cause him to bleed into some dip at a party, and before he can do anything about it, his sister eats some. Now, for those of you that watched the Chain Letter episode, we did discuss one about Cadbury supposedly having HIV-tainted blood in their chocolate. In that episode, I explained that it would be impossible for somebody to contract HIV that way, because depending on where this person did it on the production line, odds are there was going to be heat involved. Even if it wasn't, that stuff still has to be packaged up, shipped out, and going to sit on the shelves for however long before somebody buys it. Most STIs do not live that long outside of the human body. But this is a horse of a different color here because there was very little time between Riley bleeding into the dip and his sister eating it. So that kill time isn't there in the same way it was in the Cadbury Urban Legend. Even though this is a fictionalized STI, it seems like passing it is very similar to real STIs. Since there's no evidence to the contrary on this, we're going to have to kind of assume the rules are the same. This exchange also sets us up for the baby becoming infected, a la the Dawn of the Dead remake. A mother passing an STI along to her baby in utero isn't uncommon. Not all STIs can do it, but many can. Once he tracks him down, it turns out that BJ is an asymptomatic carrier. He passes along the infection, but he's never going to become a zombie because of it. This is how he outlived most of the characters from the first film, as well as the characters in quarantine in this film, because we do get word all of them are now dead, hence the urgency to find BJ. And BJ is in no way, shape, or form innocent in any of this. He was well aware he was infected, and his intent was to pass it on, to the point where he has been kidnapping women off the streets, assaulting them, to try and spread this along. When asked why he would want to do such a thing, his goal is to create a zombie apocalypse to bring about the biblical end of days. Not really sure how he arrived at the conclusion sex with a corpse would achieve this goal, but okay. Riley eventually goes full zombie and kills BJ. He may have been immune to the virus, but he sure as hell was not immune to massive blood loss. Riley is then killed by a cop. This film concludes with Brenda's husband finding her alone in a room, acting strangely while still super pregnant. Like the aforementioned films, we see the same themes of promiscuity, the misconceptions about STIs and how they are being passed, either to provide the audience with a real-world touchstone or to show how outlandish they can be. And like Shivers, the fear of catching something through a sexual assault, because Shivers had that all through it. Just the infection in Contracted was a lot less euphoric. Jumping back into chronological order, this brings us to the 2014 film It Follows. Before we even start, there is a lot of debate over this film's meaning. The two biggest theories are having an STI and living as a sexual assault survivor. Director David Robert Mitchell has stated, I'm not personally that interested in where it comes from. To me, it's dream logic in the sense that they're in a nightmare. And when you're in a nightmare, there is no solving the nightmare, even if you try and solve it. He then goes on to say about the main character, Jay, while Jay opens herself up to danger through sex, sex is one way in which she can free herself from that danger. We're all here for a limited amount of time and we can't escape our mortality. But love and sex are two ways we can at least temporarily push away death. 
Since the director doesn't seem to want to confirm one way or the other, looking at it through both lenses, it is possible to see validity in both arguments. Obviously, we're going to look at this from the STI perspective, but in doing so, the sexual assault parallels should also become clear. With that being said, the meat of this film starts off with Hugh and Jay going on a date to the movies. As they stand in line, they play a game where they pick people out of the crowd and trade places with them. While the violation of trust has not happened yet, noticing individuals, sensing their motives, especially in crowds, will be a crux of this film. Hugh eventually points out someone he wants to trade places with, but Jay cannot see her. He freaks out and they leave to go have sex in his car. Before all of this happened, Jay did tell her sister that they hadn't had sex yet, and she did seem a little nervous about the idea. But from the parts that are shown, it seemed absolutely consensual. After they're done, the car door is open and Jay is laying on her stomach in the back seat. She's absentmindedly playing with a flower on the ground while talking about life and getting older. She reveals she had a childhood fantasy of simply holding hands with a cute guy. The symbolism in this scene is pretty clear. Jay is playing with a flower that has already bloomed. While she talks about childhood innocence and growing up and the inevitable loss of innocence that comes with that, at no point does she seem like she regrets it. If anything, she seems excited about her new step into adulthood and seems just more nostalgic and reminiscent. While she does this, Hugh preps a rag with chloroform that he holds over her mouth and nose. From the assault perspective, this is where the violation comes in. The sex was consensual, the drugging was not. Abusive relationships rarely start out as abusive, and it's clear her and Hugh have been going out for at least a little while now. Jay comes to tied to a wheelchair in the industrial plant they were parked near. Hugh explains that she will now be pursued by monsters until she passes it on. This is a possible nod to the abuse cycle continuing with Jay, only clarifying this since it's where the assault allegory gets a little murky. From the STI point of view, it's talking about the spread. Passing along won't cure her, but as we discussed earlier in this episode, it will hurt people like she's been hurt. While Hugh explains it, he says things like, it can look like someone you know, or a stranger in a crowd. Sometimes I think it looks like people you love just to hurt you. He's basically echoing what we were hearing in the World War II propaganda. Just because somebody looks clean doesn't mean they are. Just because somebody looks nice, just because somebody looks friendly, doesn't mean they don't have the capability to hurt you, knowingly or not. All of this while there's a nude woman walking slowly towards them. Her presence is causing Hugh to freak out, which is causing Jay to freak out. She's been relatively docile during this, partially due to the chloroform, but probably partially due to how shocking what she's being told is, and in no way, shape, or form could she imagine being told this, much like people react to the unbelievability of finding out they have an STI. As the woman comes into the same room as them, he explains, never go into a place that doesn't have more than one exit. It may be slow, but it's not dumb. If I pull this apart too much more, I'm risking getting terminated again. Cut back to Jay's house, her sister and a few of their friends are out front playing with tarot cards. One of the cards leads them to talk about houses falling and facing inevitable destruction. They then go onto the topic of Jay and her date, saying things like, she's so pretty it's annoying, at least she's nice though. Again, arcing back to that World War II propaganda. She's nice, she's pretty, but as it stands right now, she's no longer clean. This is where Jay is literally dumped onto the front yard in her underwear. As Hugh speeds off, he says, don't let it touch you. 
him saying don't let it touch you is clearly a warning to Jay about the monsters, but it can easily be taken as a warning towards her sister and friends not to touch Jay. Hugh literally and figuratively is dumping Jay because he has now given her it. While people can and do live fulfilling lives after bad things happen to them, in this moment, Jay's world has come crashing down around her. While it's rarely the case anymore, STIs used to be viewed as a death sentence for the person involved, or the very least, for their sex life. And those are the type of feelings and sense of betrayal she's dealing with at this very moment. We cut to the neighbors across the street looking out the window at all the commotion and police cars going on around Jay's house. And their comment is, those people are such a mess. These neighbors clearly look down on Jay and her family. And often with people like that, there is a belief that if you're lower status than them or they view you to be kind of trashy, these type of things can and will happen. When we cut back over to Jay talking to the police, we hear, so it was consensual. She answers yes. This type of questioning happens in situations like these. While necessary from the person being questioned's point of view, it feels like they're being blamed by others the way at that same moment they're probably blaming themselves. Because later in the same scene, we find out that she has never been to Hugh's house because he's embarrassed about where he lives. Is that an odd thing? Yeah. Is it unreasonable to believe? No. There's plenty of people that are in situations where they don't want other people seeing the way they live. Did it give her any reason to think that this type of thing would happen? Absolutely not. It's unreasonable to think somebody being embarrassed about where they live could equate to being drugged and having this thing put onto you. We cut to Jay laying in a hospital bed with a thousand yard stare on her face that plenty of people do when they need to disconnect and process a terrible thing that's just happened to them. Once back home, it's revealed that Hugh was actually using a fake name and the cops have little to no way of tracking him. This conversation happens while Jay is upstairs in white underwear. She just keeps staring into the mirror, trying to grapple with the fact that she feels different now, but her body looks exactly the same. What breaks her gaze is when a big cherry red ball hits the bathroom window. After this, Jay keeps trying to cling to normalcy like going to playgrounds and sitting on the swings, or going to the beach, fun things she used to do. While she might not necessarily want her childhood innocence back, she definitely wants her life back. A scene that typifies this is her being at the beach with her sister and their friends, and all of a sudden, an unseen force attacks. Flare-ups from an STI can be completely unexpected and happen at really inconvenient times, like when you're on vacation, at a beach, this attack causes Jay to run, get in the car without her sister or friends. Between her fear and the rate of speed, she does get into a car accident. Her fear absolutely looks like paranoia due to some kind of trauma. Due to her driving in that state, that car crash is at least somewhat self-inflicted, like many consider STIs to be self-inflicted, no matter how they happened. Jay wakes up in the hospital with a cut on her head and a broken arm visible symptoms of what has happened to her. Her and her friend Greg end up having unprotected sex in the hospital. This happens after Greg keeps saying he's willing to take it on for her. If she gives it to him, Greg will be able to see the monsters too, and finally see what she sees, feel what she feels, and relate to her on that level. A similar thing happens with their other friend Paul later on in the film. It's also worth noting a lot of these monsters following them around are kind of pale and thin, 
which is definitely in line with the way we tend to view the sick. And the blue lighting all throughout the film accentuates this, gives them blue-tinted skin, blue-tinted lips, like you'd see on a corpse, harking back to the idea that STIs are a death sentence. This is compounded by the fact that Jay's friends can't see the monsters. Jay now sees all of the threats and monsters that have always been around. While our friends are clearly trying to be supportive and empathetic, unless Jay brings them in, they can't ever see what's following her. So they keep trying to blindly attack things that they cannot see, which leads to a lot of well-intended missteps. They love Jay and aren't going to stop trying, but it's this very complex uphill battle unless she brings them in, which she clearly doesn't want to do because she doesn't want to hurt people in the same way that she's been hurt. Both Greg and Paul had to push her pretty heavily before she was willing to pass it to them. Now we're going to be moving on to 2016's Night of Something Strange. In the same year, the same team made another film that's listed as a sequel called She Kills. I watched it for this, but it seems to be much more about pheromones than it is STIs themselves. Like Contracted, this movie starts out with Cornelius, our patient Zero, doing it with a corpse and getting an STI that turns him into a zombie. After this, we mostly focus in on a group of five teenagers going to the beach for their spring break vacation. There's another couple named Pam and Dirk that are a little ahead of this group, since Pam ditched out of school early and no one else did. Both groups end up stopping at a rest stop, where Cornelius finds them, and then stalks both groups to a fairly isolated hotel. Eventually, the girls start to get stomach pains and throw up. They write it all off as bad period cramps. Again, writing off the STI symptoms as something completely normal. The teens begin to start hooking up because it's a horror movie, obviously infecting each other. But this film also uses blood, urine, and feces, often using these infection means as a joke. And there is a running gag about poorly disposed of tampons, blending this horror subgenre with gross out humor that clearly isn't intended to be taken nearly as seriously as the others. Making everything pretty on the surface here, so an analysis seems like a bit of an overreach. While this plays out more like a gross-out zombie horror movie, it did fit the criteria of STI representation, therefore is being included. Thank you for listening. I'd like to take a moment to thank my patrons, G's96, Gorney, Carla Hoffman, and Scotty Robot. If you'd like to contribute to this channel financially, there's only one tier. It's $1. It gets you a thank you in every video, Discord access, and every cent is invested directly into this channel to improve the quality of content. There will also be a link to Ko-fi and merchandise listed down below. Even if you don't contribute financially, your time and viewership is always appreciated. Thank you.